someone were to come to me and ask for parenting advice, I would probably begin by encouraging them to go and seek counsel from someone more qualified. But if they stuck around and insisted, one nugget of wisdom I might bestow is that if you want to prepare yourself to be a parent, you might practice by thinking of the most absurd questions to ask yourself, because those are the kinds of questions your children will probably ask you. Until they learn how to use search engines for themselves, parents are like a living, breathing Google for their kids. And while this barrage of questions can tax the patience of even the most saintly of parents, the questions themselves are often born out of genuine curiosity. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was subjected to many questions as well, but they were not always as innocent as a child asking, what happens to turtles when they die? The religious leaders of Jesus' day routinely asked him questions in an attempt to trap or embarrass him. Yet the answers that Jesus gave provide some truly profound truth. For example, on one occasion, an expert in the law asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Presumably, this man thought he had painted Jesus into a corner, like a child asking, Which one of us is your favorite? And Jesus gave the man an answer. This is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus gave the man more than he bargained for. According to God himself in the flesh, the entirety of the law and the prophets hangs on two commands, love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you see that they have this very shape. The first four commandments, generally speaking, have to do with how we relate to God. There are the prohibitions against having other gods, against idols, and against taking the Lord's name in vain. Then there's the command to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. These are all concrete examples of how we are to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind. Then the final six commandments have to do with our relationship with others. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And don't covet what belongs to your neighbor. These are all concrete examples of how we are to love our neighbor as ourself. With that observation in mind, let's ask a preliminary question. Is there a reason the first commandment is the first commandment? I certainly don't want to give the impression that any one commandment is necessarily more important than the others. After all, John reminds us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So it won't do for us to say, well, the really important commandments are the first four that have to do with us loving God. John's point is that if you really love God, you will be just as concerned about loving your neighbor, because after all, God is the one who has commanded you to love your neighbor. So while this first commandment is not necessarily more important than any of the others, it is certainly foundational. This is the one that establishes the basis for the seriousness of all the others. There are not many ultimate authorities to whom we must listen, to whom our conscience is bound. There is only one ultimate authority, 
the Lord. With that in mind, what does the first commandment actually say? It might help us to remind ourselves of who is speaking. So let's back up to the intro. This is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In order to make sense of what God is saying when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, let's point out one thing that he most certainly does not mean. He does not mean it's fine to have other gods so long as you put me first. The phrase before me does not mean prior to me, as if God simply wants to be first in line when it comes to your worship. The phrase quite literally means in my presence or before my face. You shall have no other gods in my presence. Imagine a servant who is called to appear in the presence of a king. The servant comes before the king in his presence. That's the idea here. You shall have no other gods before my face or in my presence. This next analogy is far more painful, but imagine a wife who cheats on her husband and she does so in front of his face. Of course, committing adultery behind his back would not make it any better but there would be something particularly perverse and cruel about cheating on him with no regard for hiding it. Worshiping other gods is often likened in the Bible to spiritual adultery. God even reminds Israel before he gives them the first commandment that he is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He is the one who redeemed them from the house of slavery. He is making a covenant with them and he expects them to be exclusive. This first commandment is meant to make us ask the question, Where can we go to escape God's presence? Where could we go where we would not be before His face? And the answer, of course, is there is nowhere we could go. There is no place to which we could go to evade His presence or escape His sight. There is nothing we could do and nowhere we could go that we would not be before His face or in His presence. So the effect of the command is not simply to say, put God first. The real thrust of the command is, let God be your only God. You shall have no other gods besides me. Now, just what does it mean to have God as our only God? Well, one of the things we're going to find about each commandment is that even when the commandments are stated negatively, you shall not. There's a positive command assumed as well. In this case, what's assumed in this command, and we can say this with confidence based on what we learn in the rest of Scripture, is that we should love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That is what it means to have no other gods besides Him. It means that whatever is owing to the one who is our supreme authority and our highest love, that is what we give to God and God alone. J.I. Packer put it this way, Your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. The list of other gods is endless, for anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his God. So, the first commandment invites us to search ourselves, as it were, and ask whether we are abiding other gods in our life. Let's try to put it into the form of some diagnostic questions. First, what or whom do you worship? We might praise others, 
but to whom do you ascribe supreme worth in your life? Perhaps the honest answer is yourself. Maybe it's your children or grandchildren. Maybe it's your spouse or parents. What or whom do you worship? Next, to whom do you go for help? Again, when you need practical help, you might go for help to an auto mechanic or a handy friend. But I mean, to whom do you cry out? Where do you go for wisdom? Who do you lean on in times of hardship? Again, there's nothing wrong with leaning on others. God has made us to need relationships. He's the one who said, it is not good for man to be alone. But if you always lean on others and never on God, you might not be giving him his due. Third question we could ask ourselves, what or whom do you allow to control you? Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's an inanimate object like money, like your job, a hobby, or something else. Or perhaps the answer is that you don't allow anyone or anything to control you. What or whom dictates your life the most? Is it yourself or is it the Lord? Fourth, whom do you thank? Some people are so self-involved that they never thank anyone. Even if they would never say it, they live as if they have no one else to thank for anything. Others are thankful, but their thanksgiving never goes high enough. It's good to thank others. It's encouraging to them and even a helpful reminder to ourselves that we need others. But how often do you stop to thank God? If we're not careful, we can thank everyone but Him. And here's one final diagnostic question. Where does your ultimate loyalty or allegiance lie? If you had to choose between siding with someone or something you hold dear or siding with God, which would it be? Of course, we never hope it comes to that, but occasionally it does. Occasionally we have to say, my relationship and loyalty to God is more important to me than this other affiliation or allegiance or relationship. Where is your ultimate loyalty? Now, those are just a few diagnostic questions. I'm sure we could think of many more, but I want to close by pointing out why it is good that God demands such exclusive love and commitment. It's not because He is an emotionally needy person who just needs us to love Him and praise Him. It's because He is concerned for our good. So let me give you two reasons why it is good and right for God to demand such loyalty from us. First, it's right and good for God to demand such loyalty because He is the only true God. It's right for him to say, you shall have no other gods before me because he is the only true and living God. Listen to what God says later in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. So the first reason it's, it's good for God to demand such loyalty is because He is the only true God. The second reason is very much related to that. 
It's right and good for God to demand such loyalty from us because only the Lord saves. Because He is the only true God, to pursue other gods besides Him is not only foolishness, it is spiritual suicide. It's like chasing a harmful remedy for a deadly disease when a real cure exists. Listen to how God put it to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 20 through 22. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other If you want salvation, there is nowhere else to turn. No one else to whom you can look except the Lord alone. There is no other God, no other Savior, no other fountain that can satisfy. So when you hear God say, you shall have no other gods before me, don't hear it as the pleading of an emotionally needy person. Hear it as the loving invitation of the only Lord who can save. We hear an echo of it in the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.